0: Hey everybody, this is Keith Caulfield and Katie Atkinson of the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast. And you're listening to Billboard's Pop Shop Feed. Because the Pop Shop family is growing and now we've got new weekly shows in our Pop Shop Feed in addition to the main Pop Shop Podcast. If you subscribe to the Pop Shop, you'll get not just the Pop Shop Podcast, but also a show dedicated to reviewing the newest tunes, Must Hear Music, as well as a retro show that celebrates important anniversaries in music coming around again. Today on the Coming Around Again anniversary podcast, Billboard.com senior associate editor Andrew Unterberger discusses a pair of classic albums turning 20 with Billboard senior contributor Gil Kaufman calling in to discuss Third Eye Blind's self-titled debut and Billboard senior editor Joe Lynch stopping by to remember the Chemical Brothers. Dig your own hole. So be sure to subscribe to the Pop Shop feed and iTunes so you never miss any of our pop-centric shows. And give us a rating or review to let us know how much you're enjoying each segment of Pop Shop. And now, coming around again.
1: Hey, this is Andrew Unterberger, host of Coming Around Again, Billboard's new podcast celebrating notable musical anniversaries. On this pod, we'll be discussing one or two topics every Thursday related to albums, songs, bands, movies, or other music-themed items celebrating milestone birthdays, usually with other writers, but sometimes with the artists themselves. Uh, this week, I'm going to be talking about a couple records that I love both turned 20 last week, and that's a Third Eye Blind self-titled album in the Chemical Brothers' Dig Your Own Hole. I like the idea of pairing these two albums, because together they kind of represent the opposing directions that alternative rock was being pulled in back in 1997, after the last bits of the grunge movement that had defined the early decade and basically died out. At one poll, you had Dig Your Own Hole, which was really one of the iconic examples of the big beat dance sound that tried to push rock radio into the electronic age. the other poll, you had Third Eye Blind, which represented more of a kind of return to rock normalcy with loud guitars, anthemic choruses, and absolutely gigantic hooks. These albums met with varying levels of commercial and critical success at the time, but today I really think they both still sound fantastic. So I hope that you'll enjoy listening to me and a couple of my Billboard co-workers sharing our thoughts and memories of these two albums. And you'll check back every Thursday to hear which of your other favorite artists and albums are coming around again. Hey, everybody. Uh, Welcome to Coming Around Again. Uh, My name is Andrew Unterberger. I'm a writer-editor for Billboard. Uh, this is our first podcast. We're going to be talking on coming around again uh, about Third Eye Blind's self-titled debut. it uh, turned 20 last week. And on the other line, we have Gil Kaufman, senior contributor to Billboard, who uh, wrote a really great oral history for us about the album. Gil, how are you doing?
0: Good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate
1: it. Yeah, man. So uh, you know, I really enjoyed reading this. I really enjoyed working on it with you. Uh, and if, you know, anybody who hasn't read it yet, really should check it out. You get to read about you know, Third Eye Blind fighting with Oasis backstage. You get to you know see Stephen Jenkins talking with Linda Perry of 4 non Non-Blondes before either of them were famous, and you get a bunch of really fun origin stories about some of the songs on the album. So uh, before we get into the you know kind of the crux of the oral history, uh, why don't you tell me about a little a little bit about your own history with Third Eye Blind? Now it, in the late nineties, uh, you were working at uh, Addicted to Noise, like an early music web uh, website that uh, was actually down the street from where they were recording in San Francisco. Is that right?
0: Yeah, Addicted to Noise was um, a really early internet music magazine, kind of the first professional music webzine founded by a former Rolling Stone writer in about 1994, actually, so before anybody was really using the web commercially. And we happened to have an office, uh, there were three of us when we started, in the Mission uh, in San Francisco, and it was literally down the street. I would get off at my subway stop, my BART stop, and I would pass Toast Studios, which is where Third Eye Blind did some of the sessions for that first album, as well as their second album, Blue. And uh, after I did a couple stories about them for Addicted to Noise, I got to know Jenkins a little bit, and he would invite me to just
1: drop by the studio and watch them record uh, occasionally. And do you remember what your first impressions were, either of Third Eye Blind as a band or of Jenkins just as a guy?
0: My first impressions are the impressions that lasted and remain after talking to him for this story. <laughs> he, uh, he's he's a unique individual in that uh, I also lived in Chicago during the rise of the Special Pumpkins, and I got to see them quite a bit uh, because I got to know Billy Corgan kind of early on, and, and I got to go to rehearsals and watch them perform, and, and they're, they're similar in my mind because they're both really singular, driven uh, musicians who have a vision, and don't really let anybody or anything get in their way. And and Jenkins, even at that time, the first time I met him, I went to the studio, and I I seem to recall he probably spent about half an hour just showing me his guitars. And he didn't really introduce me to the other guys. You know, I I introduced myself. And, um, you know, if you talk to anybody about Stephen Jenkins, the one thing they will tell you about Stephen Jenkins is he is third-eye blind, and he firmly believes that. And I think what was interesting about the oral history is it kind of reinforces that idea that in his mind everything is you know that is third eye blind it comes from him and it's and it's true in a lot of ways and it's also the mythology that he's built up so I I got that almost uh, instantly from meeting him that 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 idea that he is third eye blind and everything that comes from third eye blind uh, springs from his from his brain
1: and and so you know while while you're kind of witnessing him trying to you know push this vision out into the world, is, does it seem like it's something that, I mean, did it seem to you like it was going to be something that connected with people the way it did? Did, did the songs kind of jump out right away, or was it surprising when he when kind of took over the world that year?
0: I, I remember listening to this album when it first came out, and you know, I, I think to this day, I just saw them last year, and I've heard Semi-Charmed Life probably a thousand times, And that song is one of the most undeniable songs to come out of that era. I think it's just, you know, you talked in talking to him about the story, he talked about the origin of it and it took years and years for that to come together. And and he was 32 when he broke through. And I think that there's something about, you know, those songs and the way they put them together that really do have a legacy. And and there's a reason we're talking about it now and, and people still listen to those songs. When I go to see them now, it's mostly 20 year olds uh, at the show I don't know how they discover their eye blind, but there's something about those songs that I think have really lasted that album especially that first album um, that that just has a legacy that is undeniable
1: yeah I mean I, I think I, I'm a couple years younger than you are and when I was uh when I was 11 is about when when the band really broke out in 1997 and you know that for people who weren't necessarily around at the time or weren't, you know, super plugged into alt rock, like you might look back on that year and sort of assume that, you know, the the 1997 alt rock was kind of defined by I don't know, like like Radiohead or uh, you know the, the the big beat movement, the you know the electronica movement that really, that really tried to take hold there. But as somebody who lived through it, I, I can attest to the fact that this album was the sound of alternative rock in 1997. This album was was everywhere, and, and it, I, I find it particularly interesting because uh, you know the the alt rock scene in 1997 was kind of in a state of crisis because uh, you know a lot of the original grunge bands, uh, you know the Pearl Jam's and Soundgarden's, Alice in Chains, like they'd either broken up or they'd sort of checked out of the mainstream rock landscape. They, they you know they were doing their own thing or they were doing separate things altogether. Uh, and yeah. even even the uh, the post grunge bands, the first wave like uh, you know Live or, or Bush or bands like that, they kind of, their moment kind of came and went in a couple years after that. And, and then in 1997 there was kind of this void and nobody really knew what was going to happen next. And, you know, there were a couple, you know, the rock radio kind of dabbled in ska for a minute, they dabbled in big beat. But I think that the album that kind of forecast where rock was going next was the Third Eye Blind self-titled album. Uh, Does that jive with your memory at the time?
0: Yeah, for sure. And my favorite part uh, about doing the story, and I I suspect Jenkins uh, wouldn't love it if if I said it, but, There was a moment where I, I made an attempt to describe exactly what you're saying. I mean, mm-hmm. you had the, 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 you know, secondary grunge wave that was kind of washing out. And then Britney and, and, and sync and Backstreet Boys, that was bubbling up. And so you had this kind of clash between hard, you know, harder rock and bubblegum pop and the kind of dirty uh, lyrical and musical aspect of bands like Bush and, and Alice in Chains. And then the super sugary stuff, and the way I described it and trying to posit it to, to Jenkins was, he found this sweet spot in between where the, it was super catchy music and it really had this kind of uplifting, you know, feel to it. But when you spent even a cursory, you know, you took a cursory glance at the lyrics, they were super dark and and really um, kind of kind of sad and twisted and. He, he covered them in this sheen that was just so catchy. And so he was this perfect bridge. And, you know, for a guy who's been striving since his teenage years to try to break through and didn't make it until a pretty advanced age in, in music, 32, he, he just hit this window that was kind of incredible, you know? Uh, he'd been working on Semi-Charmed Life for about four years or five years almost, and he was this weird bridge between grunge and big beat and, and the pop revolution. And I think that album just came at like the, the perfect moment. It was really kind of incredible. And, and he really did capture a moment there that I think helped kind of foresee what happened after and, and really made sense of that whole era.
1: Yeah. And, and I think one of the, one of the, the best quotes that, that you got in your piece, and I'm not sure if you said it before, but you know, he, t- he was talking about semi-charmed life uh, and he called the song uh, basically his walk on the wild side, I'm referring back to the yeah. old Lou Reed song, I think you hear that and you kind of like you know you roll your eyes a little bit reflexively like you know, who 's this guy think he is like you know comparing himself to Lou Reed. If you look at the song it 's actually not that bad a comparison you know the 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 hook you know the do do dude, dude hook is is, is very kind of comparable to, to to the similar one and walk on the wild side and, it,
0: and that's that's super that's that's not unintentional you know what i mean like yeah, he, sure. there's nothing he did, and then talking to him over the years very little is left to chance in what he does. I think he, he thinks and overthinks things a lot. And, and that, that is a total callback to that song. He is as much said it when I talked to him and I, and I think, you know, between the lyrics about crystal meth and just mm-hmm. all the, all the kind of, you know, lyrical allusions the things you don't hear on pop radio, you know, especially at that point. Um, I think, I think it's, it's really an absolution to that, to that song
1: and that's probably true uh and i'm sure that's that's what he hears when when he hears the song i think if you're listening to the song on radio in 1997 you probably think of it the same way you think of hansen's Mbop, you know the same kind of on, 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 on poetic hook totally. that you know you, you don't i mean it takes a lot of listens to the verses of sammy Charmed life before you really pick up on the kind of underbelly of the song but the the, sure. the do 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 part that pops that pops immediately and i i think that kind of gets at the core dilemma that that you kind of brace when dealing with Stephen Jenkins and third, third Eye Blind, which is that this guy's perception of himself and his music and his place in the rock universe is totally different than the way he's perceived by anybody else. So uh, but before we, before we started talking on the show, I, I, I kind of gave you a homework assignment. And I asked you to come up with uh, a way to fill in the blank to this sentence, which is uh, Stephen Jenkins is the 90s version of blank, but he thinks he's the 90s version of blank. And did you, did you come up with, uh, with good names for that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think, I think he, he thinks he's the Prince slash Lenny Kravitz of wow. the 90s, you know, in, in that he thinks he, you know, he's a guy who plays a lot, you know, he plays drums, he plays guitar, he plays bass, he writes lyrics, he writes melodies, he produces, he's a one-man band, um, but really he's, he's kind of the Billy Corgan of, of the 90s in that he's got great ideas you know, Billy Corgan was a Billy Corgan of the 90s, <laughs> cool, Bill in the nineties too. He's got great yeah. ideas.
1: He's super talented. He's he's a great musician. Um,
0: but nobody, you know, except for Prince and, and Lenny Kravitz to a degree, mm-hmm. works in a vacuum. And I think what was interesting to me about the story was the Rashomon tale of this album. Right? Sure. So yeah. If you if you hear you know him tell it, everything on this album, he, he is as much says to me. There is not a single lyric or a lyrical idea on this album that didn't come from me, um, but almost everybody else who I talked to had a different story about that. So I think he, th- you know, he thinks of himself as this one-man band who whose vision is third eye blind. But I think he's more akin to somebody who has a great vision but really does need that great supporting cast to get it done, which Billy Corgan had as well. I mean, James Iha. I saw the Pumpkins probably 50 times in their heyday, and you can't tell me that, you know, Billy Corgan couldn't have done what he did without Jimmy Chamberlain's incredible drumming and James E. Haw's, you know, rhythm guitar and some leads that he, you know, occasionally got to slip in, you know, or even Darcy. So I think, in talking to Eric Valentine, the the co-producer of this album, he would talk about, in this really, um, really visceral way, about all the things that the other guys did, you know, Kevin the guitarist, How he brought this shoegaze aspect to the record, and Orion, the bassist who was playing eight-string basses and triple and quadruple, you know, um, uh, tracking bass parts, and the drummer Brad, and you know, just all these elements that, that were so vital to the album that that made up the album that you know Stephen will tell you is his entire vision. So I think if if I were to answer that question, that's what it would be. You know, he thinks he's friends. But he's really more
1: like Billy. And it's interesting to to hear you bring up uh, Kevin Cadogan or Cadogan. I'm always going to pronounce that name wrong. Yeah. But uh, he he kind of played a bigger part in the story than I was expecting. And, and I was I was surprised, uh, you know, an adjective that you mentioned yourself and that a number of people in your story used to describe his kind of guitar playing and tone is, is shoegazy, and, and and that's a strange word I think to hear connected with Third Eye Blind. When most people, uh, you know, you know, you know, '90s rock nerds that even know what shoegaze is in the first place, when they, when they hear that right. word. Uh, they think, you know, Wall of Sound Guitars, uh, they think My Bloody Valentine and, and, and Ride and a bunch of bands that were, were more on the indie side of things and definitely nowhere near the commercial stratosphere of Third Eye Blind. So it, it made me wonder, like, is, is this guy kind of the, you know, the, the, the secret weapon of Third Eye Blind? Is, is he like the, you know, the John Cale of the group, to go back to the Lou Reed metaphor? Is, is he the guy that kind of gave them that, I don't know, that, that musical edge, that, that artistic credibility that they lost because after he, he left after the second album?
0: I, I think it's fair to say that. I mean, I, he would tell you that, and Orion said it, and Eric said it. I, I think what's funny is I hadn't listened to the full album probably in 10 or fifteen years. and and I went back and listened to it probably, you know, ten or fifteen times in writing the story. And I, I was blown away by the nuance and and the kind of depth of his playing. You know, as well as Orion's bass playing and the drumming. I mean, it, it's a much more musical album than I remember it being, and the, the parts, now that I've heard them talk about it and heard them describe it, are so much more distinct in my mind. And I was looking for it, obviously, but, but the way that he plays on this album is really subtle, and, and it's pretty beautiful at parts. I mean, there's there's parts where he, he really does, you can tell if you listen to it with, with the right ear, that he is going for that Kevin Shields, kind of My Bloody Valentine... Thing, and it's not, you know, it's not aping it, it's not, he's, he's not ripping anybody off, but he definitely has a sound that,
1: that is is super unique to this album and, and this era, I think. Yeah, and so it makes me wonder, you know, what, what was it about Stephen Jenkins that, that that ended up being so untenable to have this other guy in the band kind of co-leading their artistic vision? Is this guy just a narcissist, do you think?
0: You know, <laughs> I love. I, I go back to this quote, right? So it's in the story, and, and I asked uh, Stephen. I said, "What changed when Kevin and Orion joined the band?" Uh, or you know, did anything change when they joined the band? And his response was very, very curt, and it was, "No, not really." And I, and I think that kind of tells you a little bit about this band. I, you know, if if you look at the the history of it, there's a series of lawsuits uh, over credits over, you know, um, royalties between the manager and one of the couple of the previous band members. And, and I, you know, Kevin was very, Kevin and Ryan were both pretty, pretty hands off about it. But I I think they made it clear in talking to me that it was a difficult situation. I mean, Steven is, is a kind of guy. And, and again, I use the Billy Corgan illusion. I, I saw when when the Pumpkins played this show in this tiny tiny club in Madison, Wisconsin, when they were recording the Siamese Dream there, um, it was it was probably a hundred person club and they were just playing those songs for the first time or one of the first times. And at the end of the show, Billy wanted to keep playing, but but James didn't. And I saw them get in a fight in the back alley. And at some point, I you know it looked like Billy literally kicked James in the butt, you know, because he was so mad that he wouldn't come back out and play more songs. And I and I think that's kind of the, the, you know third eye blind is is one of those things where the ego of the leader was was so big that it, it was hard to find a space for yourself in the band. You know I think at one point Eric Eric said to me that, that you know he was he was really proud of having worked on this record, but he didn't see any way that it could sustain itself as a band just because of the way things were were you know in the, in the personal, the personal realm it was just it was too hard for them to keep it together because of the clash of personalities and it, and it was a bummer I mean at one point he handed over a recording of this album he had this studio he told me about um, it was called Hunk of Shit Studios in Redwood City and he you know let them come in and record there and he handed it over to this guy Jason Slater who worked with him and he was just like I'm gonna let you do this and at some point Jason came to him and said hey man I, I need you Finish this record. I, I can't get it done, and you know, and and he said, "All right, well I'll help you out." And he goes, "You know, I'll just take over." Actually, and Jason was like, "Awesome," and, <laughs> you know, like yeah. he's like, "Yes, please," you know, he's like, "Dude, I'm out of here," you know. So I I think I think there's a magic that that is caught on albums like this, and you look at any of those bands from that era, Oasis, you know, to a lesser degree because they they were able to stretch it out over a couple albums there's a magic that you catch with these kind of bands and, and when you have a strong personality like that sometimes it only lasts one album or two albums mm-hmm. and and sometimes that's enough you know sometimes that's all you need you, you only need those one or two albums and I think in the case of Third Eye Blind it was just too volatile and I think you know they managed to make I think Blue is also a pretty decent album uh, you know a good album but they couldn't keep that together and if you look at the the timeline of this band there's been a number of people in it and I think that's that's a testament to the fact that it's, it's a difficult row to hoe, you know, if, you, if you're in there with
1: Stephen. For sure. And, but the interesting thing uh, to me about all this, you know, as we're talking about kind of Steven's, uh you know, megalomania, or maybe just kind of, uh, like, the, the the fact that, you know, through all this, I would say probably that their second best known song, and the second biggest single off this album, is, is an incredibly empathetic song in, in, in Jumper, which is, you know, kind of their... Uh, you know, it's even saying to, just uh, I think based on a true story, as, as you kind of relate in your piece, about him saying to to somebody who's going through a really tough time, like, hey, you don't have to go through this. And uh, if, if you know, even just talking to me about this makes it too painful for, for me to be in your life, then I, I'd understand if you didn't want to see me again. And that's an incredibly sort of giving sentiment. It's an incredibly selfless sentiment, which makes for an interesting juxtaposition with what we know about him as a creative figure. Yeah, no,
0: I, I think that story, when he told me that story, and I've heard it before, but it really, you know, he said really beautiful things about how, you know, when you make yourself vulnerable by, by putting yourself out there to help somebody, sometimes it's so raw that they can't, they can't look at you anymore. You know, and in this case, it was a woman uh, who, had, who had been sexually assaulted and she needed money um, to take care of some medical things and she couldn't go to her parents. And so, you know, she gave so much of herself to him and telling her, you know, him her story that it was too painful to even interact with them anymore, and he was like, you know what, I get it. And he took that, that really difficult situation and he turned it into a song, and it's a really beautiful song. I mean, go back and listen to the lyrics, and, and you really, now that you know the story, it's, it's an incredible song, and I, and I think he, he was able to capture a, a sentiment in that song and, a, and an emotion that really points to his gift as a songwriter. I think he does have an ability to be empathetic, but it comes with this, this kind of uh, other side of him that makes it difficult for him to empathize sometimes with the people he works with.
2: All, all true. Uh,
1: and, and so would you say that, that doing this oral history, it, has it made you like the band more? Has it made, has it made, made you like them less? So what, does, does it affect your opinion of the album at all?
0: Um, it, it makes me a lot more interested it, you know, like I said it, it made me more interested in going back and listening to it and really digging into it a little bit more I, I don't think anything about the interviews I did including with you know, Sylvia Rhone the legendary uh, music figure who, who signed the band um, and who said that she was blown away by Jenkins and the band mm-hmm. and, and thought they sounded beautiful he looked like a rock star she was immediately sold you know, without knowing anything about them when she saw them play at the Viper Room at a showcase with, like, you know, pretty much every other major label there, you know, I, none of that changed my thought about the band. I, I, like I said, I've seen them a bunch of times, including over the last couple of years. And when you hear these songs, they're just undeniable. And I think it kind of cemented in my mind that these guys captured some magic that, you know, like, what's the story, Morning Glory or Siamese Dream, you know, or any of those landmark albums from that time really, really, you know, deserves a, a spot in the rock pantheon. And I, and I, you know, some people think this is kind of a slight band and that they are too poppy. And that's something that Jenkins gave me a 20 minute dissertation on why I was wrong about that. <laughs> Don't but, doubt it. But, you know, I, I, uh, no, it didn't change my mind about them and it really, it made me like them a little bit more because I, I really did learn that this was a, a pretty incredible partnership it couldn't last but as long as it did they were able to do something that that really stands the test of time i mean i think one of the testaments to this is when i posted on facebook a link to the story i was blown away um by the amount of people who hit me up on facebook and kind of on the side and said shit you know I, i love this album black white you know like every kind of friend of mine was like yeah man i love this album i was just listening to this or yeah i forgot how much i love this album and these are people who range from their you know late 20s to mid 40s and they all have had that same oh yeah reaction to it that you don't get with every album um there's something about this that that really uh affects people in a way that that's kind of ineffable you
1: know yeah i mean the the one thing that separates it uh in a not so good way from those other albums you mentioned the siamese dreams and whatnot are that you know, the, you should have saved some of those singles for the second side of the album because it's just you know it's, it's the first six tracks, it's the five singles, and Narcolepsy, which might might be the best album track on the album. Yeah, and it, it's hard to maintain that for another eight tracks afterwards. But but you're right that that the uh, the singles hold up about as well as anything from that era. It's it's a more musically and thematically complex album. Than I think a lot of people probably remember, and I, I've yeah I've enjoyed digging back into it over these last couple of weeks as you've been working on this story. So, yeah, sure, to, for sure. so thank you so much Gil for coming on man This, is, this has been great and uh, if you haven't read it yet You really gotta check out Gil Kaufman's uh, Oral History of the First Third Eye Blind album It's on Billboard, uh, it's a great story Awesome, thank you Hey, and welcome back to Coming Around Again. Uh, We're going to be talking next about the 20th anniversary of the Chemical Brothers' uh, big beat masterpiece, Dig Your Own Hole, turned 20 late last week. And here to discuss it with us is uh, Billboard senior editor Joe Lynch. What's up, Joe?
2: Hey, Andrew. Uh, thank you for having me. Of course, excited so. to be here to talk Chemical Brothers.
1: Well, I, I wanted to have you on because we you know, we were talking about this album a couple weeks ago, and you mentioned that you, uh, as-, as all young men do at some point in their life, went through a very <laughs> big be- big beat phase back in the day. So big uh, big beat phase. So, uh, um, why don't you tell me about that for a minute?
2: I-, I I don't know if I want to oversell it too much. I mean, <laughs> this is this was definitely the era. Um, Let me set the scene. It's the late 90s. Uh, Music was something one had to pay for. And therefore, you know, there was was not a YouTube or a Spotify where you could just easily readily sample things. So if something wasn't on the radio, um, you, you pretty much had to go out and buy the album. So I would say I was a fan, but my because it was something I liked a lot when I was that age, my knowledge is certainly not extensive. It's very much limited to the albums that I went out to buy.
1: And, and um, can you name some of those for the for the readers at home? Who i I was very,
2: very this was one of them, Chemical Brothers Dig Your Own Hole. I loved uh, Chemical Brothers Exit Planet Dust was one of my favorite albums to drive around listening to. Uh, Fat Boy Slims albums. I like the Prodigy. Um, and then the rest was all kind of stuff that I just heard, you know, like I don't know Crystal Method or whatever through mm-hmm. friends. and i was I was never super into that either a lot of the other ones. Um, The second tier. Yeah, the kind of second tier associated with it. I never glommed onto as much, maybe because I didn't have the album, or maybe just because it wasn't my sort of thing. Um, But Chemical Brothers, I would say, you know, I really loved when I was in high school. Um, Didn't listen to for a long time after that, and then kind of when this electronic renaissance, like when EDM became a a term that people started using again, I remembered it, and I started working out while listening to it, and I was like, this music is just so, like, it's just so... Per every, like there's always just so much forward motion in it, and it's just very like joyous music. It's uh, it's really fun. It's you know, even when it's like being weird and has kind of uncomfortable sounds in it, it's just really fun music.
1: Yeah, and I, I agree with all of that, and and certainly at the time, you know, I, I, was, I was I was I was a young teenager at the time, and I, I certainly had no. Knowledge of the history of electronic dance music, uh, yeah, you know, any of the that. Chicago or Detroit stuff, obviously, I didn't find about until much, much later. So this was kind of the year zero dance music, as far as I was concerned.
2: Totally, yeah. As far as I was concerned, I mean, I knew I had, I think, the Aphex Twin uh, Ambient Sound CD, and so I was aware that there was like kind of a as, as a ten year
0: old year. How does <laughs> <as> a ten year old? <laughs> okay. No, no,
2: I would, I would have been like, and I didn't have this album when it came out. I should say okay, I had it a couple enough. years out later. Um, you know, mid high school, you know, so I was aware that there was kind of this underground background. Um, But yeah, as far as I was concerned, dance music was this European thing. And Americans didn't listen to it. It occasionally made an appearance on MTV, but my parents didn't even have cable. So like, (laughs) this was all very, like, um, otherworldly for me. Um, But I think, you know, I mean, this album, like, it's just, I know a lot of people think it's their best. Personally, I skew Exit Planet dust. I think that's probably because it was the first one I bought. Um, but it's just like, it's just so beautiful. Like, um, I mean, what are, fa- like, I'd say my favorite is probably an obvious one, but, uh, where, I, where do I begin, right, which is right. the second to last song on the album. It just, it has, a uh, a very kind of like beautiful electro folk intro from Beth Orton. And then it just like, you know, builds up to a very climactic, um, big beat thing. And then, uh, you know, gets like totally deconstructed towards the end. There's this like sound of like angry kitchen appliances like screaming like it's just weird that's one thing I, I when i was re-listening to this album i love that um a lot of their songs have these strange codas um like electro bank has a, a weird ending uh the get up on it like this has kind of like it uh it takes the vocal and like chops it up and repeats it over and over almost to like an annoying point where it kind of sounds like cats yowling like there's just like a very they do a like every song maybe not every song but many of the songs like end in a strange way that mm-hmm. i found found very compelling
1: Well, it's a i certainly have my favorites on this album too and I'll, I'll talk about them in a second but i think the thing that i like about this album the most this is this is one of my you know 10 20 favorite albums of all time they've been a been, been a major fixture for for 20 years now i i, I think i bought it Close to when it came out uh, you know I was very taken with the music videos and uh this was, this was sort of my entry to that world this and a couple other albums from that year but the, the thing about the album that struck me at uh you know when I first really got into it and, and continues to strike me now is that it's it's seamless uh, you know it's mm-hmm. i think uh, eleven or twelve tracks and it, it's it's basically continuous from one song to the yeah. next there's very few hard gaps there's there's very few obvious breaks in between the tracks and, and, and as you say they're kind of these uh these outro coda things that that work as sort of interstitial, like uh, mm. like stitching in between the songs. Yeah, uh, and that is something that like I really miss uh, in terms of uh, of electronic albums, and that you don't really see. You know, when when Calvin Harris puts out an album, when Zed puts out an album, dudes like that basically singles compilations they're they're glorified right. it's like okay here's one song here's the next song here's a song after that yeah and this song this album rather it's it's like listening to a really awesome dj set it's like mm-hmm. just just kind of being taken I forgive the cliche but being taken on a journey it it, it, it really is i forgive that well yeah, thank I you Joe, i appreciate that it, it's, it's, a, it's a one hour listening experience and i don't think you can really i mean you can separate the songs and radio try to but it's much much richer listened to altogether yeah. uh and I, I asked our uh our senior dance editor Matt Medved, if if, if, that, if he thought that, that was something that might ever come back in dance music, and he says, "Well, you know, we might get a little bit more of that as uh as, as sort of the, the live DJ uh, set experience turns into just a live performance mm-hmm. for for dance music." I think people get tired of uh, which the DJ says they want to hear that next level, and he says, "You know, Porter Robinson might do stuff like that some days," but he but he brings up and I sort of agree that the streaming era makes that very difficult now, where yeah. like you, you get you know. You get these release schedules where you you get five or six songs ahead of time, mm-hmm. like the Chainsmokers album that that's going to right. be number one this week. We we've already heard several songs from, and you can't it, it, they're they're very individually packaged and you know for individual sale on iTunes even yes, and, and so you don't really get that anymore.
2: Uh, I think I think that's a very good point. Um, also, you know, just it's also the playlist era. Like people don't listen to albums as much; they kind of stitch together favorite songs. So that makes it less likely that an artist is going to want, um, a track that like ends unexpectedly and abruptly. Um, I do think it's too bad though. I mean, yeah, it it, like really, I, I think that kind of like seamless thing really is, um, a throwback to the disco era when they would take actual singles and then like, you know, DJ stitch them together and make it. So it did seem kind of like a seamless, um, experience and and there is a lot of disco on this. Like, it doesn't matter. Might be my f- other favorite song on the album, and that one you know has that great like disco hi hat thing going yeah. throughout. I
1: remember there there was some
2: publication,
1: I can't remember some some UK dance publication that did like a list of the 100 greatest dance songs of all time, and they had uh, I think it doesn't matter something like, in their top ten, wow. and, and like most of it was like very like old school disco kind of uh, sylvester type stuff mm-hmm. but they, they made an exception for this one deep cut on the chemical brothers album that that definitely made me hear it in a new way that's awesome uh but my personal favorite song on the album is, is kind of a predictable choice which is which is setting sun which was the, the lead singer the late yeah. single off the album featured uh, Noel gallagher of oasis on vocals had a great video that they played a lot uh and to me this song is still an absolute mind warp you know they they uh they kind of swipe the the drum part from uh, the Beatles "Tomorrow Never Knows," mm-hmm. and I, I, know, I know you're a, a big Beatles fan as well. Never uh, heard of them, but, no. Uh, no, yeah, I, I <laughs> well, love you, you. Found out about them through the Campbell Brothers, <laughs> Brothers, as most people our age did. Yeah, sure. Um, uh.
2: Yeah, no, it's I always wondered. Um, I have no idea, but like it, it seems a little cheeky, and they are British, so they would be cheeky. But to like take a very <laughs> Beatles-esque song, kind of has that like Middle Eastern "Tomorrow sure. Never Knows" thing and then give it to Noel Gallagher. You know, Oasis were obviously accused of, like, being a little too close to comfort for the Beatles, so I wonder if that was, like, a little bit of a playful sort of thing with them. Yeah, or... maybe.
1: And, and you know, Noel Gallagher has obviously never had any problem leaning into uh, his his cartoonish uh, fixation with the past.
2: Right, and, uh, yeah. Out of, out
1: of curiosity, have you, have you ever heard the Oasis demo version of Setting Sun? I think it came I've out. I have
2: not, no. It came
1: out, I think, on the uh, the Be Here Now 20th year anniversary, and that's a no, I, discussion I for another time. But yeah. uh, that that's... It's very interesting because it, it, it's in the Oasis version. It, it is kind of a verse-chorus sort of song, mm-hmm. and it, it kind of follows a, a sort of predictable chord structure. And it, it's a good melody, but it's not necessarily like a particularly great melody. Mm-hmm. But in the hands of the Chemical Brothers, you know, they they, they warp it, they, they kind of stretch it out like taffy, and and then and they they drop this incredible like atom bomb break right in the middle of it, and and then come back, and it's you know explosions everywhere, and, right? And it's. It's unbelievable, you know, you, you talked about this already, but just how propulsive the music is. Mm-hmm. You know, the drums never stop and it it, it just it's 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 I have never tried it, it as a workout music, but now I think I might have I to think to it's this, it's yeah.
2: a good one. I mean, yeah, and I I agree with what you're saying. There is a little kind of what we're saying with the propulsive thing, like you do when you lose that, there's something a little bit sad about losing that in culture like a, a hour long mix um you know, and obviously people make kind of, like, mixes of other people's songs, but kind of a seamless album of dance music that just mm-hmm. goes from one thing to the next. I would not be mad if I saw that come back. No. Um, I mean, and this is certainly not recent, but, um, not to bring it back to Madonna, but I'm trying to find a way to. But, <laughs> Always comes back to Madonna. But, um, she had the Confessions on a Dance Floor album, which was her disco throwback, um, and she released two versions of it, one of which was separate tracks, and then the other was kind of, oh. like, a seamless mix, where everything, like, kind of did, like, one track into the other, um... So I mean, maybe someone could do something like that. Yeah. I, I don't know. You could get Madonna and the Chemical Brothers together—that would have been incredible. Yeah.
1: As, so you know, you, uh, you, 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 we were talking about this before, and you said that you know it's been a little while since you listened to the album, but uh, you're you're gonna you're gonna give it another shot uh, in preparation for the podcast. So I'm curious: did any aspects of the album stick out as particularly dated to you? Is there anything that you're like, uh, maybe that hasn't aged so well? You know, just, uh,
0: oddly
2: enough, not really. I mean, the only thing I would say is um almost the opposite i would say when it came out again i didn't get it in 1997 when it came out it probably bought it in like 2000 or something um i kind of thought block rock and beats was a little lame i wasn't yeah. super into it it just seemed like like a not totally convincing attempt at hip-hop but listening to it now it actually sounds for some reason I, I guess i'm giving it more of a pass i, I enjoyed it a lot more um I, I think kind of bereft of any historical context, it makes a little more sense. At the time I was just like like, oh, American rap is like so much further ahead of this. Like what are, <laughs> like they sound like way Step behind game the up, time. Chemical Brothers. Um but now, just in a kind of general sense where it just kind of like floats in this ether of classic recordings, it sounded good to me. Um so re- really very little of it seemed I mean the only thing that stood out, and this isn't so much dated, but I was it struck me and I guess this is probably why you know, rock people liked the Chemical brothers so much is that there is so much guitar in this which sure. you don't get in modern dance music. Um, Electro Bank has like a kind of a psychedelic fuzz breakdown at the end. Um, you know the bass line is very prominent obviously that's not unnatural for dance music. Um, but you know there's a lot of a lot of guitar noises in this that you just really don't get um, in contemporary dance music or even really in a lot of their contemporaries. I mean, Fat Boy Slim wasn't very guitar-heavy, maybe mm-hmm. bassline, but not otherwise.
1: Oh, this, this brings me to my next very important question, which is, have you ever actually tried dancing to the Chemical Brothers?
2: Um, that is an excellent question, and I think the answer is no. Okay, I, mean, I, I feel like I've never been at a party where they've come on, unless I'm forgetting something. Well, but no, if-
1: <laughs> I, I, I asked because... Uh, You know, obviously, I was not—I was too young, as I imagine you were—well, as well to be kind of part of the original rave movement. Not that Chemical Brothers even necessarily had much to do with that. But uh, the only time that I've ever actually danced to the Chemical Brothers was I was at a friend's wedding, and uh, you know, he his friend was basically the DJ, so he got to call the shots on the playlist, and they they played Block Rock and Beats, which was a big song Mm -hmm. for me and some of my friends growing up. And we had no idea what to do with this song. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 actually a very slow song, that just happens to have a very fast bass line. Mm-hmm. And it, and listening to it now, you know, for all for how propulsive the album is, which we talked about a bunch already. Like, I don't know how you dance to this album. The, 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 the rhythms are kind of counterintuitive, and and it's more yeah. just like full body, like th- like like almost like a, like uh the old school like electric uh, electronic body music than than yeah. actual like house four four beats that you can actually pump your fist to or whatever
2: yeah i think it's a lot of maybe like head bobbing music i think when i was listening to it earlier today with my headphones on my head was definitely going up and down pretty (laughs) furiously but no you're right i i I, it's hard to imagine like how you would move your legs to this legs and shoulders like (laughs) what are they doing it's not it's not happening And, and it does
1: make me wonder like like how this album really resonates with people younger than us who are are you know they're used to dance music being like an inestrictable part of the mainstream and you know, for 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 them, it's 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 not mind blowing at all to to hear you know a a, a, a DJ duo or, or an mm-hmm. electronic based act be you know the headliner at a major major rock festival or anything like that, and I I, I do sort of wonder like. If I was trying to talk to somebody, you know, 15 years younger than me about the Chemical Brothers, would I sound like, like a classic rockhead like, raving about Foghat or something? Like, is, is it just totally
2: out of step you, at this point? I would say probably, but I mean, maybe <laughs> Foghat may be a little harsh. Uh, okay. hope no one's in Foghat's listening to this, <laughs> but I mean, um, you know, they might not be quite that, like, lame, but um, yeah, it might be, like, a totally separate world for them. I feel like, and I, I could be wrong, but I, I feel like people who, and you you kind of, we talked about this Podcast a little bit um, that I think just without having personalities, uh, yeah. you know, not not to say they don't have personalities, but that was not part of their look. Um, someone like Moby or Tiesto maybe seems slightly more relevant to a or to a younger audience, whereas like Chemical Brothers, like no one knows anything about them. They maybe have faded off a bit more, um, but I could be a hundred percent wrong. Like maybe people who love. Uh, you know, like, teenagers who love electronic music, like, this is part of their curriculum. Mm-hmm. I, I can't really say for sure. Yeah, no,
1: I... I, I you know this, this is obviously a, a, something of, a, that proved to be a major stumbling block for the Chemical Brothers because... You know they didn't really know how to present themselves in any interesting way. And if you, you know, I went back and I read a couple like contemporary profiles of the Chemical Brothers, of you know, in preparation for this, and basically the writers all have to kind of deal with the the essential question, which is how do we make these guys seem interesting? Mm-hmm. And they have no interest in seeming interesting themselves. Uh, and you know when you compare that to to like, you know, Daft Punk, who had a very defined aesthetic with the, you know the, the, yeah. the robot helmets and all that. And the prodigy who had like this incredibly charismatic frontman and Keith Flint, who actually didn't even really do that much in mm-hmm. the group, but they were able to kind of put him at the forefront of their videos, and it made them seem visually exciting. The Chemical Brothers, they 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 lived and died by the strength of their music videos, uh, and they had some really good ones. They had mm-hmm. some some really. Uh, some some really clever ones. They had some really imaginative, eye catching ones. Uh, they they got the best acting performance of Sofia Coppola's career in the uh, the Electrobank video. Have, have you ever seen that one?
2: Yeah, well, like I said, I didn't have MTV growing up, so I don't uh, actually think I've seen that. Yeah, that,
1: that's she, she plays like a, a a gymnast doing doing kind of one like final routine, and like there's like a there's like an evil gymnast sitting on the other side. And, and then she got like a belly coroli type figure, kind of coaching mm-hmm. her on parents show up at the last second it's a great video and it's a it's a fantastic uh sofia coppola performance i
2: hope to check it out
1: but uh but yeah the, the, the fact that you know we're, we're talking about sofia coppola uh, <laughs> as an as important part of the chemical brothers image shows just you know kind of how how bereft they were of their own charisma
2: yeah i mean it reminds me actually of, of a similar uh, act basement jacks who mm-hmm. kind of the same fate befell them i mean like a great great album act who i feel like are not super well known or talked about these days at least among kids sure. you know i think they're very well liked among people who grew up listening to them but um compared to you know like we said like a fat boy slim or maybe a tiesto who like the kids i feel like such an i'm not really <laughs> that old but you know like who like teenagers are aware of still young young compared to us certainly yes um not so much the case with Chemical Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um they did have I mean I guess they must be well known enough that like Lord tapped them. Uh everyone's favorite cool t- well not no longer a teen but uh <laughs> Lord tapped them for that Hunger Games soundtrack. I forgot about that. That's a good point. Which yeah. was I think like a Miguel collaboration right. or something. That oh, was a very cool song. That song was very cool and it,
1: it ended up on their album but without Miguel on it which was which was a bummer to me personally. Yeah. But yeah, you're right, and again, when I was talking with Matt earlier, he mentioned that there are a couple kind of next-gen electronic musicians that are starting to weave Chemical Brothers samples into their Mm -hmm. stuff and and, and, kind of recognizing the legacy there. But yeah, I think that the true legacy of the Chemical Brothers is just that they made really great albums, and I don't know how well they hold up in the current EDM landscape or how much relevance they have with artists today or, or, or the people that listen to them. But, uh, you know, you go back and listen to these albums, they still sound fantastic. And I, I would say of the, you know, if you want to talk about the kind of the three big electronic albums from 97, they'd probably be uh, the Prodigy's Fat of the Land, Daft Punk's Homework, and, and Dig Your Own Hole. And, you know, Fat of the Land was the most popular at the time. Uh, you know, it debuted number one in the U.S. charts. Uh, and, and Homework is probably the one that holds up the best. You know, it's mm-hmm. the one that, that, that the most people still listen still, to. Still, yeah. But I think Dig Your Own Hole is the best of these three albums. And, uh, I would go I would believe that as well
2: okay. I, I think I mean I'm a Daft Punk fan but yeah I think their acclaimed albums can run a little long and I think there's very little fat on this
1: for sure less fat than the fat of the land less fat than yet. fat of the land definitely alright well that seems as good a note as any to end on uh, thanks for coming on Joe thanks Fancy for, for having talking me. Chemical Bros. with me and uh, hopefully this, this reignites your, your big beat phase maybe get a nice volume 2 in there
2: I'm gonna go home and try to dance to this alright that's what I'm gonna do <laughs>